And I want to start this with a proper prayer. Om Sadashiva Samarambham Shankaracharya Madhyamam Asmadacharya Paryantam Vande Guru Paramparam All right, a namaste to everyone uh, in the room. And um, it's a great pleasure for me to um, introduce uh, mindfulness from a secular perspective. That's what I'm going to do. All right, let me now trace the slides before I in this session. Now it is not here. All right. Now it is not here. Now I need to. No, it's not here. Just, just give me a minute. I'm going to bring my own laptop. We have about 15 minutes for presentation as well as interaction. All right, so thank you for waiting. I'm sorry for this um, mindlessness. All right, so can I have that? It's okay. Can I have my. All right, so now. If today, if you were to search for the word mindfulness on Google, now one of the first things that you would notice is you will not see any Buddhist references or you will not see any Vedic or Hindu references, but you will see more secular references. Now that's the state of mindfulness today. So what we're going to look at is, my main goal, of, main goal of this session is to look at the rise of mindfulness as medicine. Now the reason why mindfulness became very popular today is because of the fact that it became participative medicine or what we call as complementary medicine. And the thing that we have not seen yet is whether this secular brand of mindfulness has a connection to Vedic or yoga traditions. That's what we're going to look at right now. All right, so the word mindfulness, um, which is in Sanskrit, is called Smriti and in Pali is called Sati was first translated into mindfulness by a guy called Rice Davis. I don't know whether you're aware of this guy. He's, he's actually a, a, a scholar. More than 100 years ago, he used the word mindfulness for the word sati and smriti. As um, the word smriti, which, which means literally to be remembered. Now, the whole idea of remembering in the Buddhist tradition is to remember that this body and the nature of reality is impermanent, which is a very important concept in Buddhism. So that's how the word mindfulness came about, and we are stuck today, unfortunately, with this word, although it's not the best translation, in my opinion. All right, so we're going to look at a bit, a bit of myself. Now, my, I was born in Singapore. My grandparents came from India, uh, from Tamil Nadu. So um, I was born in Singapore, Singapore, and I learned all of this in Singapore from a Singaporean context. That's my background. I met my teacher in 1999, from, from whom I learned Advaita Vedanta. 
And then I started teaching this for a while and then learned Hatha Yoga from S. Vyasa, became a certified yoga teacher and learned uh, secular mindfulness from Shamash Alidina in 2014. When I started the Center for Mindfulness in 2015, and uh, I've been teaching, I've taught this with my colleagues uh, to about more than 4,000, 5,000 people in Singapore, to corporates, to schools, and we measure the impact that mindfulness can create. That means we put them through a mindfulness program and then we measure if there is any change. So that's one of the things that we've done in Singapore quite a bit. I've also written three books, two books on mindfulness and one book on Advaita Vedanta of Shiva Samhita. Uh, these are the three uh, books that I've written. So. Where I'm coming from now, I don't presume to be a scholar. I don't presume to be an expert. I am still learning. I'm still a work in progress. I'm still practicing. I'm still learning. Every day I'm learning. Yesterday I learned so much from meeting Dr. Ganesan as well. So I'm learning every day. I hope to learn from every one of you in this room today as well. Now let's look at the research of mindfulness. Now take a look at this. These are the number of papers that you see uh, being published on mindfulness till today. You can see from 2000 till 2018, there is a big exponential increase the number of papers being published and that's precisely the reason why mindfulness has become popular because we have research evidence when we say mindfulness when we ask whether mindfulness works it works because we have so many papers published now the next thing that we're going to see is the results of mindfulness recorded in uh, uh, literature now we see 10 distinct results that are, that have been captured by researchers so you can see all the 10 on this particular slide so People who practice mindfulness and the results that, that we see now, these are the 10. Now, what other benefits can we see from mindfulness? Now, these are also the benefits of mindfulness. If you see some of these things that are very interesting right in, uh, in the front, you can see that there is this improved mental health that is recorded, stress reduction, emotion regulation. And if you go down, even treatment for bipolar disorder and even addiction. I wrote a paper on how mindfulness impacts uh, addictive behaviors. So even people with drug addiction, people with smoking addiction, uh, they, they find that mindfulness creates a very huge impact. Now, what's the research question I'm answering? Now, this is the question I'm answering. Is secular mindfulness similar to any of the Vedic philosophies and practices? In my opinion, the answer is obviously a yes, which, which we're gonna see right now. Now, what method have I used? Um, I'm looking at mindfulness definitions, descriptions and practices and I'm going to compare them with texts of Vedic tradition, especially the Advaita Vedanta texts and yoga texts. That what, that's what I'm going to compare with. All right, so, so the sources of mindfulness, um, I'm using the works of Dr. John Kabat-Zinn. As um, uh, we have already discussed, that John Kabat-Zinn becomes a very important teacher in secular mindfulness because he was the one who made secular mindfulness very popular in the late 70s. And I'm also looking at secondary sources as well. Now, by primary sources and secondary sources for Vedic tradition, I'm using Prasthanatrayam, Brahma Sutra, Upanishad, especially Mukhya Upanishad, the principal Upanishads, and uh, Bhagavad Gita. Uh, Yoga Darshana, I'm using Patanjali Yoga Sutras as well as Hatha Yoga Shastras. Prakana Granthas are basically from the Advaita tradition as far as what I'm going to cover. And I'm also looking at some secondary sources. Now, first thing, now there are two schools of mindfulness. We need to be very clear about that. The first school of mindfulness belongs to what we call as the Langerian school of mindfulness, which is created by a person called Alan Langer. The second school of mindfulness is by John Kabat-Zinn, um, which is called the Eastern school of mi mindfulness. So what I am focusing today is the Eastern uh, school of mindfulness. I'm not covering the Alan Langer school of mindfulness because it does not involve meditation at all. All right. Although it's a very popular school. 
in the US. Now, definitions of mindfulness. Now, there are various definitions. So what I did was I analyzed 17 definitions of mindfulness that were that been published in literature, especially five definitions from John Kabat-Zinn himself. And then look at the look out for key descriptors that make it unique so the, what we're trying to do is look at all the definitions and try to compile what are the key descriptors that define mindfulness so i've listed as you can see here um, these are the key descriptors that we find in all the various types of um, definitions now the interesting thing about um, these is that all of these key descriptors um, can be categorized into these five. Very interestingly, you can see this. You can see that we categorize under awareness, attention, acceptance, and wisdom. So these are the four broad categories under which all the key descriptors of secular mindfulness can be, can be organized. And from here, you'll see another pattern. Now, watch this. Now, so these three key um, indicators, awareness, attention, and acceptance, become the primary descriptors for mindfulness. And the outcomes of this is right in the center, as you can see, wisdom, self-understanding, and psychological freedom. Now, these are outcomes of the three descriptors or outcomes of mindfulness practices. Now, let's look at the Vedic antecedents. Let's look at the parallels right now. Now, in attention, all of us know there is dhyana, dharana, and samadhi, which we all know. Right? When it comes to attention, which is a very major point of convergence that we see with the Vedic tradition, you find this in the Yoga Sutra, you found, find this in the Mundaka Upanishad, Brahma Sutra, and even Kaushitaka Upanishad as well. You find that. Now, there are more. I don't have to go because almost every yoga text talks about dhyana, dharana, and samadhi. So, I need not, uh, I need not dwell on this a little more. If you look at acceptance, which is samatva in the Vedic tradition, the Samatva Yoga Uchyate, as the Gita says. Now, this can be found in the Bhagavad Gita as well as the Ishavasi Upanishad. We have this idea of Samatvam, the idea of accepting experiences, which becomes a very important component in secular mindfulness. And needless to say, awareness, which we all know, consciousness, Chaitanya, Chit and Jnanam that we see in the Upanishads. These are explicit words that we find. And again, we find this in the Aitreya Upanishad, Brahma Sutra, um, Brahadaranika Upanishad, and uh, Kata Upanishad, Mundaka, and even Shvetashvatara Upanishad. So we find all of these mentions in all of these texts. Again, if you look at it from a standpoint of the key descriptors, we have really antecedents in Vedic literature, which is so obvious, that, but, but is easily seen when you categorize them into these three key descriptors. And when it comes to wisdom, self-understanding, and psychological freedom, again, we have the words for it as well, which is basically moksha, atmajnana, and prajna. The same ideas that are expressed in, in Vedic tradition as well. So one key thing that we notice in Kabat-Zinn's um, presentation of mindfulness is the fact that mindfulness is a unique type of meditation, which he repeatedly states. It is not like any other meditation, but it is also a meditation, but it is very unique. Now, let's look at the key features of these unique types of meditation. Now, the first thing he makes is this. He says, wherever you go, there you are. Basically, wherever you are, that's a place to be. There's again a second direct quote from Kabat-Zinn. He says, it is simply to realize where you already are. That means there's not something for you to reach, something for you to achieve, something for you to uh, attain. Again, another definition, we are not trying to improve or to get anywhere else. 
again he makes this point and lastly another point he says there is truly no place else to go you find this from three different books that he has written he makes this keep a distinction with, with from other types of meditation now what does this tell us now that we have again an antecedent in vedic tradition which is this particular verse where wherever your mind goes there is samadhi I don't know whether you've heard of this variance. We can find this in Saraswati Rahasya Upanishad, Yatra Yatra Mano Yati, Tatra Tatra Paramritam. Is one particular reference we have. Another variant we have of the same in the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra, which is Yatra Yatra Mano Yati, Tatra Tatra Samadhi Bhi. And then again in the Drishya Viveka, also we see the same verse, a different variant. Yatra Yatra Mano Yati, Tatra Tatra Samadhiya. So you can see here what Kabir-Zinn says is actually not something new. We have this in the Vedic tradition, in the Upanishad, as well as in the other uh, Prakarana Granthas. And you can see the title of his book here, Wherever You Go, There You Are, which is basically the same idea. It is so interesting, right? So we don't see these parallels until we look at the Vedic literature. So again, he makes another interesting point. He says, uh, meditation being knowing something about who that is, about knowing the self. And we have this in the Yoga, Yoga Yajnavalkya text, Dhyana as knowing myself. And again, in the Bhagavad Gita Bhasha, Shankara says, Dhyana is Atma Swarupa Chintanam, which is basically knowing the self or dwelling on the self. Again, we have a parallel with what Kabat-Zinn is saying. And then here is another one. He says that the whole idea of timelessness and that concentration and calmness are related to timelessness. And again, we have an antecedent in the Brahma Sutra Bhasha, where we have asana being, uh, being a position where relaxation takes place. Shankara comments on it as well. And then Yoga Sutra, of course, Tiram Sukham Asanam, that takes place in Yoga Sutra. And the self being timeless, which is again an idea that is fine in, found in the Bhagavad Gita as well as in Shankara Bhasham, as well as in Shiva Samhita as well. So again, we have antecedents. Now, what is the uh, implication here? Now, the first thing we need to see is that there is a clear disassociation from striving or doing types of meditation similar to Patanjali. So what, what Kabat-Zinn takes pain in his works is he's trying to disassociate mindfulness meditation from Chitta Vritti Nirodha or Mano Nasha that was spoken. He's trying to completely disassociate. So that is the implication here because Nirodha can be actually a karma. So he's destroying that idea by saying in mindfulness, you don't do an action to gain that state. So he's diametrically opposing what Patanjali is saying. But of course, Vyasa Bhasham and the Shankara Vivranam on the Yoga Sutra may take a different view. But we look at it from just the Yoga Sutra, there seems to be a point of divergence. The second point is, it, it is similar to the idea of a Vedanta called Praptasya Praptihi, which is accomplishing the accomplished. Knowing the self is not a karma, but is a matter of a jnana sadhana, where you know yourself as you already are. Which is again pointing out to the concept of Vastu Tantram versus Purusha Tantram, which we find in Panchadashi, Brahma Sutra Bhashyam, Shankara Bhashyam, Shankara's Upadesha Sasri, and Kena Upanishad, which is Pratibodha Viditam Matam, the mantra that talks about it. And then, again he says, the idea of noticing thoughts as opposed to removing them. So there is no Mano Nasha, there is no attenuation of thoughts, it's just noticing thoughts and accepting them with Samatva. So it's closer to the Gita, if you, if you want to really draw a parallel. And then, what is the philosophy of mindfulness? Um, let's look at that as well. So Kabat-Zinn makes some philosophical statements in his books as well. He makes, he makes this statement that we have this intrinsic wholeness. That's one thing that he mentions. And then he mentions that there is this original, anadi, wholeness. And 
um, what was born whole. That means it, we were always whole, complete. And he says that this is actually intrinsic wholeness at any time because its very nature is that it's always present, which is called nityam. It's being a nityavastu. It is who we truly are. Again, he mentions that. And then again, he says another one. We are in touch with this being whole. One with everything. Idea of non-duality, Advaita, comes about. And one with everything. We feel whole ourselves. Now, the philosophical statements, the implications are this. Now, two ideas emerge from these statements. Wholeness is intrinsic. It is our nature. It is our swarupa, he mentions. Wholeness is non-dual, meaning Advaita, he mentions. Now, the, the unique thing is the ideas of wholeness are not taught in early Buddhism. In Buddhism, we only see Shunyavada, Shanikavada. We see that, Vijnanavada. In fact, Anatta, Anatma is what is taught. There's no idea of wholeness or completeness in early Buddhism. But Kabat-Zinn talks about wholeness in his works. So that creates a problem. But the problem can be solved when we know Vedic literature. Because when we look at um, this Advaya a little closely, you find that Buddhists use the word Advaya, not Advaita. When Buddhists use the word Advaya, it means the middle path. It doesn't mean non-duality. We need to be very clear about that. In early Buddhist work, we see Advaya as the middle path, not Advaita. But the Advaita concept of Purnam and Ananta appears in Bhradhanika Upanishad, Taitri Upanishad, Brahma Sutra and Chandogya Upanishad. We have the reference for that of Purnam. I think you all will know Purnamada, Purnamidam, the famous Shanti Mantra. We have that. We have a precedence for this in the Upanishads. And as you would know, Shankara also doesn't use the word Advaita in his Prasthanatraya Bhashyam. Shankara uses the word Abheda Darshanam or use the word uh, Dvaitavada Pratisheda. That's the word that Shankara uses. He doesn't use the word Advaita at all. So, again, non-duality is suggested as an idea very similar to the Advaita Vedanta teachings by Kabat-Zinn. A very strong point that we see. This is the last section that I'm going to talk about. Can I take another three minutes? Um, can I do it? Because I think this is very key. Can I take that? Is it okay? Thank you. Right. The roots of mindfulness. Now, here you can see Kabat-Zinn saying that he wanted to make it secular as we spoke about. He says that by making it secular, we can, um, we can remove the impediments so that people can get access to it. He says, if we bring the dharma or we bring religion into it, it may not be accessible, as he was a medical doctor. And he says that the source of mindfulness is Buddhism, Zen, Yoga, and Advaita Vedanta. He explicitly quotes Yoga, Nisargadatta Maharaj, uh, I think everyone will know the one who wrote I Am That, and Ramana Maharishi in his works. He, he identifies these sources in his works as well. And here you, can, you see a direct quote where he mentioned that Yoga and Vedanta are influences for mindfulness. Another quote where he mentions Ramana Maharishi on the question of who am I. He mentions that in his works. And finally, here in another work, he says that the key to this path, which lies in the root of Buddhism, Taoism, and yoga again comes up. So he doesn't, he doesn't run away from the fact that these are the sources. All right? But what he's interested in is whether we can remove suffering. That was the main goal through mindfulness, being a medical doctor, obviously. Right now, practices of mindfulness. These are the practices of mindfulness created by John Kabat-Zinn in his famous MBSR. I want to direct your attention to something he calls mindful yoga. In the mindful yoga, these are the asanas practiced. You can see Setu Asana, Vrikshasana, all of them are right here. And he, he acknowledges that these come from Hatha Yoga. Openly acknowledges in his book, Full Catastrophe Living. With this, this is my conclusion. All right. Now, the first conclusion that we can make is the secular mindfulness as invented by John Kabat-Zinn has similarities with the Vedic tradition of the Upanishads and Yoga Darshana, which is a given. 
we can make that conclusion. Number two, the descriptions, practices and philosophy as a whole are more aligned with the intentions of yoga and Vedanta than Buddhism. So, but Buddhism are reclaiming it, but the yoga and Vedantins are not doing it. Although it's more aligned with yoga and Vedanta traditions. The teachings of Vedic traditions could have been an unconscious influence on John Kabat-Zinn because in the 1970s, yoga was becoming very popular. And the way yoga was brought by BKS Iyengar and Krishnamacharya students was that Vedanta and yoga were two sides of the same coin. So there's an there could be an unconscious influence on Kabat-Zinn, although they are two different traditions, but he saw them as one. But it created the uh, mindfulness, secular mindfulness tradition eventually. And my last conclusion, this is my main point. I think secular mindfulness is more indebted to the tradition of Advaita Vedanta and modern yoga, to be very precise, than perhaps ever acknowledged or even noticed. In fact, I think that this is the most important point that we need to notice. This indebtedness to the Vedic tradition, to Advaita Vedanta and modern yoga has not been stated enough. We don't find evidence in literature. And this is my conclusion. Thank you. Thank you, Kati Rasanji. We have time for only one or two questions, the max. Right. right. I don't get your question. Can you please say it again? Yeah. Secular and yoga. Now, you mean secular and yoga side by side. As a secular meaning an adjective qualifying the noun yoga. Right. Uh, the answer is, yes, yes. I think it's an oxymoron. Uh, because when you use the word yoga, it's a technical word that appears in Shastra. Yoga does not appear in secular literature. It appears in Shastra, Vedic Shastra, Yoga Shastra, Upanishads, and Buddhism, as well as Jainism. And the, the whole idea of yoga, which is Yudhyate Anena Iti Yoga, as some people say, that brings to connect. The whole idea of connection is purely a spiritual word. So I think if you want to use the word secular yoga, we've got to be very careful. Perhaps we should call it calisthenics, inspired by yoga. Right. Okay. So let me answer your question by looking at this slide. Now, attention, acceptance, and awareness are actually practice definitions in mindfulness. They are not, they are not uh, end state definitions. So all the definitions that we look through, which I have not listed, which I'm going to write down in a paper that I'm going to pass on to the chairman. Now, you find awareness and attention, acceptance are practice definitions. Wisdom is an outcome definition. So that's the connection. Right. So... Right. So in the in the definitions that I've used, all of them describe them as practice definitions. So you will see them in the paper. They are not as outcome definitions. But of course, in Advaita Vedanta, awareness is not something that is attained by karma anyway. It is your very Swarupa. So that's where you see a point of uh, uh, divergence.
Okay, so Ishwara Pranidhana, a term that is explicitly for Yoga Sutra, perhaps, but in in but the key thing that we need to see is that in the secular mindfulness movement, there is no Ishwara, there is no karma, there is no dharma. We need to be very clear about that. That's why it's called secular. So therefore, the idea of Ishwara, the idea of Anugraha, the idea of Dharma, the idea of Karma, all of them are excluded by Kabbadzin. He doesn't use it. So, but what we are saying is, although he excludes them, even after excluding all of this to make it secular, it still has actually ideas from the Vedic tradition. That's what we're trying to establish in that sense. Now, I mean, this justified, the question whether it's justified is a very subjective question because it all depends on your allegiance, right? In my opinion, I would say that the outcomes are very valuable, number one. But is it justified? Uh, perhaps not. But to be very honest, to be also very, to be very honest, we can see that Kabat-Zinn acknowledges the roots. He acknowledges the roots. He says that it comes from here. And his purpose, he's not a scholar. He's not, he's actually a doctor. What he wants is to alleviate suffering. So he used whatever that was in his, uh, uh, what he called, uh, at his disposal and put it together to create a, a, a process to remove suffering. That's what he did. Thank you, Kathira Sanji, for a very effective and thought-provoking presentation.